Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. This week, we continue going through the archived sermon series, Influenced by the Cross. In part two of this three-part series, we look at what empowered the first generations of Christians to form relationships that crossed ethnic, religious, cultural, and class boundaries in ways that were unheard of in their time and place. A quick note before we get started, the scripture reading for this sermon was cut off, but it was preached from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And now, here's Glenn. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you that you're the one that orchestrated it. I thank you that everything that is good, true, and right that is done in this service is because of you. You've supplied everything that we need to know you. You've given us your word. You've given us your people. You've given us your songs. You've given us your sacrament. You've given us your spirit. Everybody in this room has enough to know you tonight. Take us to new places, God. And I ask it in your son's name. Amen. Sometimes what might appear as a minor event has major impact. The day that Michael Jordan grabbed a basketball. The day that Paul McCartney picked up a guitar. The day that a Scottish scientist returned to his messy lab station, found some mold growing, and penicillin was born. The day a 42-year-old African-American woman refused to give up her seat on a bus. The day that Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. Now, if you read first and second century sources, you'll just find a footnote. You'll just find a sentence about the death of Jesus Christ. But you only need to look at the impact today, over 2,000 years, across virtually every people group and every class to see its impact. We're looking at the influence of the cross of Jesus Christ upon our lives. Last week, we looked at the influence upon our words. This week, I want to look at the influence upon relationships, in particular, cross-cultural relationships, which is the focus of this text and really a theme that runs through the letter of Ephesians. Now, first century Rome was a multi-ethnic, multicultural melting pot. And Ephesus was a prime example. It was about the same size as D.C., about 500,000. And in the first and second century, it was at its apex of prosperity. It was a cultural jewel. Tourists from all over the world would come there. You'd get out and you would just walk down this road that was lined with columns. They would come to the, uh, the theater that was able to see 25,000 people, a magnificent library. They would come and see what was one of the seven great wonders of the world, ancient world, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis. It was a magnificent place to see. It was also a spiritual, uh, a center of spiritual pagan religion. People would come to that place to worship in the temple of Artemis. It was also a place that you would buy shrines and idols. In fact, you can read in the book of Acts that there was a riot instigated by a silversmith who made some idols. He was upset about the way the Christian faith was hurting his prophets. 
It was a place of political power, second only to Rome. Caesar Augustus had dubbed it, or named it rather, the capital of Roman Asia. It was the seat of the governor. It was a place that people came and were impressed with, sort of reminds you of Washington, D.C. But we all know it's one thing to visit a place, it's another thing to live there, right? And when you live somewhere, somewhere, you're aware of the, the trouble and the tension underneath the surface. And that was certainly the case in Ephesus. Tension between groups like the Jews and the Gentiles. The Roman Gentiles saw the Jewish community as a strange and stubborn sect. They resented their particular way of life. And when that resentment grew, they would act out against them, desecrating their synagogues by forcing idols into them, beatings, massacres, and finally in AD 70, destroying the temple. The Jewish community responded as well. They saw Gentiles as immoral and unclean, mostly. Didn't see the image of God so much in them. It was unlawful, actually, to help a Gentile woman in her time of birth because you'd just be bringing another Gentile into the world. They would refer to Gentiles as fuel for hell. And yet, something remarkable happened in first century Ephesus. You could walk through the city and you began to see little communities where Jews and Gentiles were sitting side by side in worship services, where they were sharing life together. They were eating bread together. They were serving together. They were suffering together. And it wasn't political power that did it. And it wasn't cultural shared experience. It wasn't economic prosperity. And it wasn't religious understanding It was the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that did it. It was the cross of Christ that had brought them together. And it's the same hope that we have today, my friends. It's as these people saw themselves moving from alienation to reconciliation to validation that they came together. And that's what I want to look at this evening as we consider how the cross influences, in particular, cross-cultural relationships. First of all, the alienation. Now, to be alienated is to be outside or separated. And Paul reminds the Gentiles that they had that in two directions, vertically with God and horizontally with the people of God or the community of God. He starts by reminding them you were separated from Christ and without God in the world. And as he says that, he's saying two things. Number one, he's saying to be without Christ is to be without God. And so he's affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. But he's also saying that not all gods are created equal. He uses this little phrase, without God, and it's, it's the Greek word that is atheos, where we get our word atheist. Now that might seem strange to us. I thought you just said, Glenn, that they were people that believed in gods. They did. You see what Paul is saying is to believe in a false God, is to be alienated from the true God. It's not enough just to be spiritual. It's not enough just to have a God, he's saying. It's not enough just to be religious. If you don't know the true God, you are alienated. Now, in modern ears, and I know to some of our ears here, that may be very offensive, because we have been schooled to believe in our day and age that people should worship however, whatever, and whomever they want. But we should also realize when we say that, we're basically saying 
that um, God is whoever we say he is. That's what we're saying. And if you and I don't like people telling us who we are, why should God like us telling us him who he is, right? Why should God feel any differently about that? But also, we, we wrestle with this idea of conversion, that anybody would be asked to convert. It's an offensive idea. I doubt any of the Ephesians felt that way. They had lived their lives trapped in the fates. They were exhausted from trying to appease their gods. They lived under the fear of death constantly. Their daughters served as temple prostitutes. I doubt any of the Ephesians in that church were offended when they were invited to know God as a father, God as an advocate, God as a provider, and God who would send his own son to rescue and save them. Nor did they likely miss their old life, which Paul describes in a letter in Titus pretty well, when he says, For we ourselves, and he's including now himself, he was Jewish, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Sound familiar? Earlier in this letter, he says that one of the causes of our alienation for God is the way that we allow our passions and desires to become God. The way we make our wants the chief thing that we pursue. The way we would say, you know, I mean, if someone gets in our way, well, they just better not get in our way, right? I get mad at people that get in the way of the refrigerator at home when I'm trying to go there. If someone gets in our way, we get angry. We get angry at God. And it wasn't just to live in anger. And it's a real drag to live in anger, isn't it? If you struggle with that, you know, it's a real drag to live in anger and hostility and malice. It's not any fun to be alienated. It's not any fun to be enslaved to your passions, is it? But we find it's not just to live in anger. It's to live under righteous anger. Where deep, deep down, you know, you know, the way I live, God would be just to punish me. God would be just to find displeasure with my life. This is what it meant to be alienated from God. But he also says they were alienated from the people or the community of God, which he refers to as the commonwealth of Israel. Now, if you look at the history of Israel, you see that when they stayed in covenant relationship with God, they enjoyed prosperity, protection, and privilege. God was watching their back. He was at their side. He was in front of them, laying the ground right before their feet. And as he did that, it was meant that the nations would have a righteous envy of that, that they would long for that. And that was God's plans all along. When he started with Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you so I can bless the nations of the earth. God's plan was to set up shop with Israel and then franchise in all the different nations. And there was a steady stream of people from the nations always coming into Israel. But it wasn't until Jesus Christ was died and raised and preached that the floodgates opened up. And the nations began to stream in. And so you had the Jewish and Gentile churches. And Paul says that the Gentiles had a chance to taste something from the inside that they only saw from the outside before. And the book of Acts gives us a nice picture of this. Listen to this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing their proceeds to any that had need. Day by day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That doesn't sound bad, does it? That sounds like a pretty good community life, a pretty good taste of life. And Paul is saying, don't you remember, Gentiles, when you were alienated from that, when you didn't enjoy that, you didn't know that. The church is supposed to be the same sort of experience where people get a taste of something where if they weren't excited, they go, man, I'm really missing out. They were alienated. But also, he says, don't you remember what it was like to live without the promise of God? He says, strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, when mankind turned his back on God and broke their covenant with him, God graciously established the covenant again with them. And it was like a diamond with many sides. It was one promise of grace, but there were different sides that you could look at. There was promises of a place. I don't know if some of you saw the article in the Washington Post. And it was actually one of our partner ministries, N Street Village, in their work with women's shelters someone that had been given a place, a homeless woman. And she said this, You know, I'm just used to being kicked out, but no one has come and kicked me out here. That's when I realized, by the grace of God, this is my place now. I can breathe. That's what it's like to have a place, to find a place. And Abraham knew about that. He was a wanderer. He knew what it was like not to have a place. And so God said to him, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a land. And he got, a, he got some land. He got lots of prosperity. But it was just a taste of what the people of God would have when they went to the land of flowing milk and honey. But that didn't stay either because the real taste was the new heavens and the new earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. God is promising a place for you and I. You know, in this church we're saying goodbye to each other all the time, aren't we? We're always having to move. It's the way that life moves, and we're committed to place here. We want to be committed to this place, but sometimes we don't get a choice, right? God moves us on, and we long for the day where we can just be in the place together with every people, every tribe, every nation to be in a place together. But it's also the promise of a people. Abraham was childless. God said to him, I'm not only giving you a child in your old age, but you will have descendants, spiritual descendants, beyond the stars. And the promise of God means you don't only get a page, you find a people. You find a people. That's what we're hungry and thirsty for. That's the community we desire. And that's what God means to give us. When we're alienated outside of that, and I know some of you are new to this community, you're lonely. Some of you have been here a long time, you still feel lonely. Not everybody has found a people here. There's still prayer to do. There's still work to do. But we hunger for that. But it's not only that. It's the spiritual influence. When I think about, you know, the spiritual children, that is the people that you are influencing, many of you. It's going to be amazing, amazing to see the influence at the end. But then there's the promise as well of position and stature. That was part of the covenant promise. God had said to David, you will have a throne that never ends. Now, is that because David did so well? He did great for a while, but then he screwed up. Is that because the kings of Israel did really well? Just read the book of Kings. You'll see the answer to that. 
Where would it come from? It would be David's greater descendant, the king of kings, Jesus. Because of him, the throne would go on and on and on. And because he is a king that loves to share things with his people, share things with his royal sons and daughters, it's said when he resurrected, it's like you and I are already at the throne of God. And one day enjoying the new heavens and the earth and ruling with God. This is what the scripture says. Position and status, not in the way the world does it. Not in the way where it's just me and my status. And I claw for it and I get it. And that's what I think about is my resume and my life. It's not that. It's status by grace. Position by grace. Promise and hope go hand in hand, don't they? In fact, when someone has promise, we have a lot of hopes for them. To have no promise is to have no hope. To have no promise of God is to have just yourself. And that is to be alienated from hope. So Paul says to the Gentiles, Don't you remember? Don't you remember when you were loyal and devoted to false things? Don't you remember when you bowed to knee the things that were beneath you? Don't you remember when you were ruled by your selfish desires? Don't you remember what it was like to have no one watching your back and no one on your side? Don't you know what it was like to have a life without promise? Now, why does he tell them that? Well, in some sense, the Gentiles in that church were the majority culture. And in some sense, as the majority culture they were starting to forget where they came from. They were forgetting that what they enjoyed wasn't by their works, but by God's grace, chapter 2. They had forgotten that what they enjoyed in terms of privilege and position and power came by the hand, the sweat, and the blood of someone else. The prophets that came before, but chiefly Jesus Christ. It's easy for majority cultures to forget what they've been given. We see that in the story of America. The fields were planted, the fruit was plucked, the canals were dug, the track was laid, the bridges were built by minorities who were paid very little and who were rarely promoted and who the majority culture had forgotten. Paul doesn't want the Gentiles to have that experience where they forget what God had given to them. But he gives them even a more powerful motivator. He gives them a spiritual motivator. You know, if you are someone here that has suffered racial alienation, social alienation, political alienation, alienation of any form, people that have undergone that typically are the most compassionate, most sympathetic, most motivated to see change. Because there's nothing like experience to drive you. And don't you see what happens in the gospel? No matter what your story is, when you come to know Jesus Christ, you get a taste of what it's like to have been there. You have something inside of you that then drives you. A spiritual motivator that goes deeper than any other experience. It goes as deep as your soul, as deep as your spirit, as wide as God. God the one that brought you in from being alienated. There's no better motivation. But just the memory of alienation isn't enough. There has to be the present reality of reconciliation, which we see in both nearness and access. Nearness and access. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Paul mentions two groups there. He mentions those that were far away, the Gentiles, and those that were near, the Jews. But notice, after he mentions Christ, there's just one group, and they're all near. Everybody is near. Now, I was shopping for some tickets last week, and you know how it works when you're shopping for tickets. Proximity is determined by price. If you want to pay a lot of money, you're going to get close. If you're not going to pay a whole lot of money like I wasn't willing to, you're going to end up in the nosebleed section. That's the way it happens. But the gospel tells us, this passage tells us, through Jesus Christ, everybody gets a box seat. Everybody gets to the front row. I mean, the way it works in the world is you get to see the VIP or you get into the event, and it happens in our city. If you've got clout, you've got cash, and you've got connections. The gospel teaches the way that you get near to God is through one thing, through Jesus Christ. That's all you need to have. And that's because, as the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody is brought near. Because it really doesn't matter whether you're near lost or far lost, does it? You could be two blocks lost or you could be lost all the way across town, but lost is lost. You could be professional clergy that is lost. You could have been raised inside the church and be lost. You could be raised outside the church and be lost. You could be lost in your immorality, lost in your morality. You could be good girl or bad girl lost. You could be good boy or bad boy lost. Lost is lost. Far is far. But near is near. And Jesus Christ... And Jesus Christ brings people near. How? Well, at the cost of his blood. That's what it means, the death of Jesus by the cross. That's what that means. Because it's at that place that he took your place of alienation. He took my pain of unfaithfulness. He took our condemnation for our rebellion. He took the ejection from our rejection. This is what Christ did. All that is to say that Jesus became the total outsider, my friends. This is what Christ came to do, to become the total outsider. He was thrown out of the synagogue. He was crucified outside of the city. He was put away from the presence of God. My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is placed outside. And my dear friends, why was he? It was for you. Jesus Christ could not have become more of an outsider so that you could become an insider. Jesus Christ could not have become more lost so that you could be found. There's nothing more that God could have done. And it's because He wants you home. He wants you home. Maybe some of you left home a long time ago. Maybe some of you have lived in the house for a long time, but you've never really been there. Jesus Christ has come that you might come home. And I know the hesitation you might fear if you're in that place. That God might not, what sort of reception you might get. But I promise you what the gospel teaches, that God is never mad in your coming back to him. He is never angry in your coming back to him. And while you're sitting there wondering, I wonder what sort of reception I'm going to get. The house is just stirring. In fact, you might even think that royalty is coming. And that's because royalty is coming. The royal sons and daughters of God are coming. And as Jesus dies to bring us home, he doesn't bring us halfway home, and he doesn't bring us a quarter away home, and he doesn't bring us to the end of the block, and he doesn't bring us to three doors down. He brings you up to the front door, through the front door, into the family room, to the upholstered chair with God sitting on it, and into the lap. 
That's where he brings you. He brings people home. It's time for you to come home. It's time for you to know the God that made you. It needs to be tonight. But he also tells us there's not only nearness, but access. Talks about a wall. Now, with the temple, there was an inner court for the priest. A little bit farther away, there was a court for the men of Israel. A little bit farther from that, there was a court for the women. Then after that, there was five steps down and a wall. And then there were 14 steps down and another wall. And beyond that was the court for the Gentiles. And on that wall, they would read, enter upon pain of death. Paul knew that well because he was almost lynched when he, they thought he brought a Gentile beyond that wall. Now, God had that wall there to remind Israel that they were a set-apart people. But he was also reminding everyone that we enter God's presence God's way, not our way. And, you know, we really need to receive that word as a culture. We enter God's presence God's way, not our way. Because he's God and we're not. We don't even enter, you know, the president's presence without lots of invitation, right? Why would we think we enter God's presence any other way? But Paul also says that wall was a symbol of something. It was the symbol of the laws, the commands, the ordinances of God that one had to keep to gain access because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, you might ask a question, Glenn, I thought the Christian gospel taught that you didn't have to, you know, keep all the laws and it wasn't your religious dedication that helped you gain access into God. And that's exactly right. That's why there were sacrifices happening all day long behind those walls, reminding people that the only way that they were going to get in was through a life being sacrificed, by blood being sacrificed. That those sacrifices also reminded you that sin separates you from God. It puts a giant wall up between you and God. And our only hope is someone might be able to scale that wall and let us in from the inside. Someone might be able to provide the final sacrifice. Someone might be able to fulfill the law. And the gospel tells us that someone is Jesus Christ and that some place was the cross of Christ. It was at the cross of Christ that Jesus becomes the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He takes the judgment for our failure to keep God's law, and he takes the righteous anger of God, thereby, as Paul says, killing the hostility. He wrestles wrath to the grave. If you were someone that is a follower of Christ, and you're sitting there going, you know, I wonder if God is still just plain out mad at me. Is God is just still hostile to me? I wonder if a little bit's left. This is your answer. Jesus killed the hostility. It's dead. Ding dong, the wrath is dead. Maybe we ought to sing it together. Ding dong, the wrath is dead. Jesus put it to death. That's why he died. But also on that cross, he offers his perfect life, his obedience to the laws, he meets the demands of the laws so the law no longer has power to condemn you and I. But you know that walls don't come down by themselves. They have to be knocked down. And this passage tells us that they got knocked down with the flesh and the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is Jesus took your brick wall 
that Jesus ran into the brick wall. And as his precious body is broken over that wall, something happens in history that had never happened before. All of a sudden, there's a crack. You start to hear some crumbling. You start to hear some shaking. And then, boom, it's come down. And as the dust is all around you and the dust is clearing and you're rubbing your eyes, you see something that amazes you, that astounds you. Access. You have access. You look up and you see those five steps and that wall's down too. And you look farther up and there's that other court that you couldn't get to. And there's that court farther away. But more and more you can see all the way into the Holy of Holies. And maybe you hear the benediction that says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve as God and Father. This is what we hear. This is what we see. And as you do, you, you run up those stairs. I mean, what are you waiting for? You run up those stairs. You fly through that court. You go around the bend. And you run straight into the Holy of Holies. And you find the Lord God of heaven and earth who made you, who loved you, who saved you, who you were meant to walk with, who you were meant to be transformed with, who you were meant to live with eternity with. You find Him there. And you lay hold of Him. And if you do that, I know what you're going to do next. I know what you're going to do next. You're going to say... Who's not here that should be here? Who do I long to be here? And if you really understood what was done for you, what an outsider you will be, there won't be a culture you won't cross. There won't be a racial barrier that you don't plow through. Because how could you not? This is why sworn enemies were sitting in the church in first century Rome. This is why Jews and Gentiles were together reconciled and no one could understand it. This was the reason why. But then we move to the validation, which speaks of two things, peace and oneness. Paul says that what Jesus preached to the Jews and the Gentiles was peace. Peace. How does God's voice sound to you? Does it sound like thunder? Does it sound like bombs that are breaking? Or does it sound like the early birds of spring? Does it sound like the majestic tide going back and forth? Because what you hear God preaching to you will be what comes out of your mouth. And of course, we only have to open our ears in our culture and day and hear lots of things that come out of the mouth. Words that just fuel the fire, the fire of stereotypes, whether it be about an Asian basketball player, a white gentrifier, or a black president, about a conservative, about a liberal. We hear them all the time. The majority culture dismisses the complaints of the minority culture and assumes that they understand it. The minority culture just becomes more angry and cynical. We know that story. We know that fire. It burns well in our city. But the church is supposed to be a different place. A place where peace is spoken. A place where people feel it's safe, where I can actually bring my story out. And people will be slow to speak and quick to listen. Where blogs are replaced by face-to-face meals. 
And that's where it really begins. That's where it happens. But peace is not just what is preached, it's who he is. You notice Paul says, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. And you know what that means. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ here, you must be an agent of reconciliation. You must be an agent of peace. You don't have any choice. Because that is the gospel that has won you. That is the gospel that has saved you. And if you decide to do that, you know, that takes a lot of peace. I mean, have have you ever stood in the middle of a conflict? I know you have. It takes a lot of peace to not join in the fray. It takes a lot of peace not to attack somebody who attacks you. It takes a lot of peace, you know, to just sit there and let someone pour out their hurt and their anger, whether it be righteous anger or unrighteous anger, and just listen to them. It takes a lot of peace. And it only will be peace that will help you give up your right to be angry or stay angry. And I know some of you have righteous reason to be angry. But it's only the peace of the gospel that will enable that. And that's what Jesus Christ gives us. But there's also oneness. Paul repeats this over and over. The blood made us both one to recreate one new man in place of the two, to reconcile both one body through the cross. Through him both have access to one spirit. Later he will say there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's still spinning the same theme. This is the basis of the oneness. You know, I've mentioned before to you all that I had a wake-up call my second year of marriage where Meg said to me, I feel like we're living like we're roommates. And I just sort of was like, what? You know, huh? I don't get it. What she was saying was, let's talk about oneness here. The task of marriage is to become one, right? But it doesn't mean my other identities just disappeared. I'm still a brother. I'm still a son. I'm still a neighbor. I'm still a father. I'm still a pastor. But what it means that all those identities submit to the one big identity. And that's what Paul is saying here. The Christian is someone that understands that whatever identities I've been given my racial identity, my ethnic identity, my political identity, my whatever it be, that all gets submitted under my identity in Christ Jesus, who I am in Christ. And that's what he says here when he says you become citizens. He's saying your civil and political affiliation come beneath your allegiance to the king, Jesus. When he says you're a brother or sister, he's saying that your connection to those that are Christians that walk with you should be as tight as your family. And he not only talks about where, he talks about who. He says that you are a temple and a body. And you know what that means? It means there's no a bunch of us. In some ways, there's no churches. There's no just individual Christians. We are a body. We are one together. In fact, he'll say that the temple only can grow together. And later in Ephesians, he'll say it's only when every part of the body is functioning properly in the body will the body grow. I want to ask you, do you see your spiritual growth dependent on the body growing? And in this particular area, you know, we might say, you know, I'm not going to grow unless I have some more Christian education. I'm not going to grow unless I have a community group. I'm not going to grow unless I have a better outlet to serve. I'm not going to grow of what? We need to be saying, I'm not going to grow unless the body of Christ becomes more racially diverse and reconciled. It's that essential. I'm not going to grow. 
Is it that urgent? Has it become something where you go, you know, this isn't a nice extra. And man, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself, and you're getting it through me. Because that is where I am at. And I've been at it longer than a lot of you. I wish I had more progress to boast to you. But God has got my conviction. But we know it's easier to theorize and not our head. The rubber hits the road when you start to look at your life. When you start to say, when you start to ask the question, where do I think I'm acting out of faith and believing in faith, but really I'm just sort of acting out of my culture. I'm just acting out of my race. You know, I may think that I'm acting out of faith, and someone says to me, or God says to me, Glenn, no, really, what you're acting out of is the fact that you are white, a man from a middle-class background, and you like the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, that's what you're really acting out of. And here's the thing. We can't know it by ourselves. We're all stuck together. We need one another. That's what Paul is saying. We're one body, one temple. Because, you know, you can't be in yourself and outside of yourself at the same time. And that invites other people into the conversation, which can make you nervous, but is a blessing. I've told you it's been such a blessing for me to be able to sit with brothers of a different culture from me on the pastoral staff and have them in such a winsome, loving way sort of say to me, ah, you don't quite get it, Glenn. <laughs> you know, and I know for many of you, you've heard me preaching and you're sitting there going, yeah, you don't get it, Glenn. Mercy, mercy. But we need one another. And the church, my friends, is supposed to be the grand experiment. It's supposed to be the case study. It's supposed to be the place where God does something like he did in the first century church, where people in Washington, D.C. are going, I don't get this. I don't get how this church can be made up of these people that are from different stories and different backgrounds. What's the explanation? And man, then they're just throwing you the slow wind across the middle. You know, it's just like you can tee it up and go, boom, the glory of God did it. The gospel did it. The inexplicable grace of Jesus Christ did it. Do you want in on it? Do you want in on it? I want in on it. And so there is no influence upon relationships like the cross. There is no power for relationships like the cross. There is no better hope for a kingdom of every tribe, tongue, and nation than the cross. Let this be a community that is birthed out of the cross and let its beauty shine. Let it grow in ways that all of us would go, glory to God. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience with your church, Jesus. Thank you for the work you did in the early church. Thank you for the way the gospel uh, unfolds this theme. Oh, God, would you help us? Would you grow us? Would you bring down brick by brick, stone by stone, that you would bring the walls down in our community and walls down in our city and that we might be one in Christ's name, amen.